my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizrah. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your raves have gone over me. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to, my God, to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him again, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. morning, Christ community. I just want to take a second and thank three groups of people. Well, two people and one group of people. I want to thank Bill for already being such a great mentor, and I hope that we all understand how blessed we are to have him as a campus pastor. And I want to thank Paul uh, Brandis for he sort of facilitated my transition into Christ community while doing one million other things at the same time. So I'm thankful to him. And thank you to you uh, as a congregation. It's, for Melissa and I, it's been not an easy transition from school into full-time career, from Chicago into Kansas City. Um, but you've made it a lot easier for us. So we're, we're really thankful um, to you. And so I'm also thankful for the opportunity, of course, to open God's Word with you this morning. And before I do that, I'd like to pray, so if you'd bow with me. Lord, we thank you for this time that we get to worship you, we get to study your Word, we get to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, we give this time to you. Lord, we don't need to hear from the feeble words of a human. We need to hear from you. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would work through me. You would work in the lives of this congregation. In your name we pray. Amen. So most of us have a song or a musical artist or musical genre that would be called maybe a guilty pleasure. So for myself, I had a guilty pleasure. This is a good song, but it was a guilty pleasure at the same time. It's called Every Time We Touch by Cascada. <laughs> so a lot of you like that song. Don't worry, it's, it's not bad to like that song. But for me, it was a guilty pleasure. So I, I used to mix or make CDs, mix CDs uh, quite a bit. I liked making playlists. And so I would make CDs with these different genres of music, and I had one CD that had this song on it. And so I would be, we're from Houston, Texas originally, so I'd be driving down Highway 6 in uh, Houston, Texas area. And this song would come on, and I would roll the windows down, turn the volume up, turn the bass up, boom, boom, boom. And bobbing my head, winds blowing through my buzz cut, 
And then I would get to a red light. And I would roll the windows back up and turn the volume down. <laughs> so I like this song, but I was, I was vain. Um, I didn't want the people, the strangers in the car next to me to know that I was jamming to every time we touch. <laughs> so why, why is that, other than my vanity? Why would I care? Because I think we can res we relate to that a little bit. And I think it's because the music that we listen to communicates what resonates with us in our lifestyle. And I didn't want to be seen resonating with a girl singing about how she feels in the arms of her man. <laughs> in general, what music we listen to reflects to some extent who we are. And this highlights the divide between us and the Psalms, and the authors of the Psalms. As a songbook of ancient Israel, the Psalms are full of lament, a huge amount of lament in the Psalms. It's a central part of the Psalms. And that's pretty different than our regular Christian music, which has a wonderful tradition of praise, but has little lament. So I like Caleb. That's our sort of default radio station in our car. If you don't know, that's sort of a well-known Christian radio station. It's, but what's the motto of Caleb? Positive and encouraging. Caleb. <laughs> Which is great, um, but it, doesn't, it just doesn't match the Psalms. And our prayer lives usually follow after the music that we listen to, the music that we worship to. We praise God in our prayers. We ask Him for things in our prayers. We even confess to Him in our prayers, uh, as Bill preached last week. And those are all great things. But how much do we lament in our prayer? And why do the psalmist lament so much? If this is the central biblical book on prayer, why is there so much lament in it? It's hard to understand for me because I don't practice lament very much in my prayer. But it makes me ask, why did the Holy Spirit inspire the authors to put so much lament into this book on prayer? Why does Scripture make it look like lament is a good thing? And we're going to see this morning that the reason there's so much lament in the Psalms and the reason that lament is good is that we can truly hope in God only when we lament. Now, before we dive into unpacking that, let me say this. The author of Psalm 42 and 43 is not a professor giving us a lecture on exactly how to lament. Instead, this is a master inviting us to apprentice him as he practices lament. So you see the difference. It's, this is not laying down the rules of lament necessarily. And this, that's not what this sermon is doing. But it's the record of a master lamenter that we get to sit under and learn from. Now Psalm 42 and 43, if you didn't know this, I didn't know this actually before I, I started preparing for the sermon. But Psalm 42 and 43 are meant to be read as one single poem. It's not two 
different psalms that are completely separated, but they're one unit. And so in this one poem, these two psalms, we see three stages of lament that lead to hope in God. We express desperation for God, we wrestle with the absence of God, and we seek restoration from God. Three stages of lament. So if you would, look at Psalm 42, verses 1 through 4 with me. This is where the psalmist expresses his desperation for God. And I'll read it here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The deer, like any animal in the wilderness, has one thing uppermost in its mind at all times, and that's survival. It's designed to, to do everything it can to survive. So a deer that's thirsty, that's panting, that's exhausted, that's dying of thirst, is thinking of only one thing. I want water. And this is what the psalmist likens his soul and his desire for God to. He wants God. He's thirsty for Him. Look at the repetition in verse 2. He says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come in a beer before God? He's impatient. He sort of sounds like a kid asking, Are we there yet? God, when am I going to get to you? This is a person that hasn't sinned. He's walking faithfully with the Lord, but for whatever reason is feeling God's absence. And, and let me just pause and say that if, if you are in a spiritually dry place, if you're not getting much out of your prayer time, you're not getting much out of your scripture study, you're just emotionally maybe depressed, it's not necessarily because you have sinned. There are times when we sin and we feel separated from God, and, and confession, as we learned last week, is a remedy to that. But just know that just because you are depressed, just because you're going through a spiritually dry place, that doesn't mean that you've sinned. And that's the case that, that's going on here. The psalmist hasn't sinned. And so he's thirsty, but he's crying, right? So water. But the psalmist doesn't even get the dignity of having his tears quench his thirst in verse 3. It says his tears are his food, literally in the Hebrew, his bread. So his thirst isn't being met. His desire is not satisfied. He has nothing but his weeping. He's desperate for God, but the best that he can do is dwell on a memory of God's presence. So that's what he does. He remembers God. So he ends this first stanza with the refrain that's repeated three times. 
Ask this question that's meant to be meditated on, and it commits to hope in God. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I confess that my desire for God usually is not quite on this level. This is some extreme stuff. His soul is dying of thirst out of desire for God. I don't know how often I could say that that's the case. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who feels like their desire for God is small in comparison to this. And I'll give you one of the main reasons for it. McDonald's. We live in a society designed to meet our every desire, let alone our every need, the minute that we want it. You're hungry? Fast food at McDonald's. You're thirsty? There's a coffee shop on this corner and a soda fountain in the restaurant on that one. You want to listen to music? You can listen to basically anything in the world on your phone. You want sensual pleasure? Open up your internet browser, turn on the TV. None of these things are God. None of these things can even begin to replace God. But we can deceive ourselves and cover up our desire for God with these things to the point where we don't realize we want God, to the point where we can't relate with Psalm 42. When we're captivated by the things of this world, by the materialism that's in our culture, that is all around, we can't lament. Why would we? We have seemingly all of our desires fulfilled. We've placed our hope in possessions and people instead of in God. The call to lament is a call to desire God to the point where we become weak when that desire is not fulfilled. In the prayer of lament, we reject the comforts of this world and chase with everything that we have after the true desire of our hearts. And we freely express our desperation for Him in prayer. We can truly hope in God only when we lament. In the section of Scripture that Bill read, we see the second stage of lament. We wrestle with the absence of God. The psalmist has poured out his soul, God, I want you, I need you. And how does God respond? Let's take a look at verse 7, which gives us the answer to this question and is an often misunderstood piece of Scripture. It starts with this phrase, deep calls to deep. This is a phrase that is in Christian songs. It was in one of our songs this morning. It's in worship songs, it's in poems. In our culture, it's usually taken to mean this sort of beautiful picture of the depth within God calling to the depth within us, this sort of deep-level communion with God. And that's wonderful. It's just not what it means here. Take a look at what comes after it in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. That doesn't exactly sound positive. Deep calls the deep is this picture of a waterfall plunging into a river. This one body of water plunging into another body of water. And bodies of water were not 
looked on well by the Old Testament writers. They're not this beautiful, serene sort of thing. Remember in Genesis 1, before creation, in the heavens, God created heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, the earth was formless and without void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This is supposed to be a frightening scene of the unknown, of chaos that God puts into order when He creates. So this chaos, this being unknown, this frightening image of huge, massive bodies of water that we can't control, that's how water, or bodies of water is viewed throughout Scripture. In Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there is no sea. Why? Because there's no more chaos. It's done away with. So the picture here is not a poetic, nice phrase about a relationship with God, but it's a word picture of chaos and fear and the unknown. And in the next sentence, the psalmist is overtaken by this deep, this unknown chaos. The waves pass over him. He's drowning. But this is a metaphor. Psalmist isn't literally drowning. It's ironic that in the first stanza, he's dying of thirst, looking for a stream. And here he's drowning under these crashing waves. He's found the water. He's gone deep into it. He's committed to finding God. But all that happens is he gets crushed and pushed down by the waves and the pounding of the waterfall. So what does this metaphor refer to? second half of this stanza shows us what's happening here. We're going to circle back to verse 8 in a second, but take a look at verse 9 with me. It says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist is drowning under the weight of God's absence. He's desperate for God, and the one he desires refuses to show himself. As if that wasn't enough, he's being taunted by his enemies about this. Where's your God? He feels like he's drowning. So as I said, both Melissa and I are from the Houston, Texas area, so the beach that we went to was on the Gulf of Mexico in Galveston, Texas, about 45 minutes away. The Gulf of Mexico is this beautiful oil-filled body of water. <laughs> but we would, we would swim in it, nevertheless. Some places were nicer than others. And once, when I was probably 12 or 13, I was at the beach, and we, one of the things we did at the beach was, you know, waves would come in, and we'd... Uh, if the water, we'd go up to like where the water is in our midsection and a wave would come in, we'd jump and let it carry us. So there's this kind of fun sensation. So I was playing this game one of the times we were there with my brother. And my brother, you know, my mom's calling. We're, we're leaving soon. And so my brother goes back and I decide to catch a few more waves. It's the next best thing to surfing. I don't know how to surf. But 
I decided it would be a good idea, now that I was alone, to go a little further out and to get a few more waves, bigger waves, and like really let it carry me and go to shore after that. So I, I stepped out, you know, a few, just a few yards. I didn't go that far out. And all of a sudden, this huge wave towered over me, came down, crashed right down on top of me. And I was underwater. And so the, the, the strength of the water was pushing me down. I was trying to get back up, and another wave comes, pushes me down even further. And so I'm, I'm trying to paddle back up in another wave. And this goes on for several times. And at one point, I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm done. I can't get out of this. Eventually, the waves let up, and I'm able to get my head above water and swim a little closer to shore, and I was fine after that. But I remember the fear that I felt, the hopelessness that I felt while I was under that water, being pushed down, being trapped. That's what crying to God and having him seemingly give you the cold shoulder feels like here. That's what asking for God's presence and meeting silence is compared to. That's what the psalmist is feeling here. So how can we say that we wrestle with the absence of God. Why don't we just say we're crushed by it? Well, verse 8. It reads like this. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That seems so out of place, doesn't it? I mean, he's drowning, God's absent, he's asking where he is, and then there's this like sort of quaint little sentence. Here he affirms his ongoing relationship with God. How can he do that if he's being crushed by God's absence? So the structure of this stanza gives us a clue. There's something in Hebrew literature, especially poetry, called a chiasm. So in a chiasm, a key point of the passage is put in the middle. So we, we usually think key point or main point comes at the beginning of a talk or a book or at the end. But in Hebrew poetry, it often occurs right in the middle. And that's what happened here. The psalmist has put this sort of key point right in the middle. He's saying, even though I'm going through these things, I don't know what's happening, there's turmoil, I don't know where you are, God, I'm still committed to you. I still know that our relationship continues. And this gets to the difference between lament and grumbling and complaining, because they're different. Dan Allender puts it this way, a grumbler has already reached a conclusion, shut down all desire and postures with questions that are barely concealed accusations. The person who laments may sound like a grumbler, both vocalize anguish, anger, and confusion. But a lament involves even deeper emotion because a lament is truly asking, seeking, and knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. It is passion to ask rather than to rant and wait, rave with already reached conclusions. A lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion and moves 
toward God. See, lament is symptomatic of a healthy relationship with God. If you're going through something, if you're going through something serious or something heavy, you are not going to take that to an acquaintance. You're not going to share in any kind of detail with someone that you don't trust. Even some of your friends, you're not going to open up fully. You share your deep pain only with that one or two people, if you're lucky enough to have them in your life, that you trust fully. God doesn't want to be your acquaintance. He doesn't want to be simply admired by you on Sunday morning and periodically throughout the week. He's supernaturally glorious and demands praise, yes, but he's not settling for just that. He desires intimacy with you, the kind of relationship where you can share and process and vent about your most horrific hurts and even be angry with God. A healthy relationship with God involves lament. So if you've lost a job recently or a relationship or a loved one, and don't get why God will let that happen, take that to Him. Lament. Cry out to God. Ask Him why. It doesn't have to be polished. You may or may not get an answer. The psalmist doesn't. But air it out in prayer. Process through it in prayer. And then like the psalmist, after you process through it, commit to hope in God based on His promise to never leave us or never forsake us. Wrestle with God and His absence from you. That leads to the refrain again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The final stage of of lament that we see in the psalm is we seek restoration from God. Here we see that lament is not simply a passive thing, but it moves us to demand the righting of the wrongs that we're facing. Read Psalm 43, verses 1 through 4 with me. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Lament enables us to take seriously the wrongs that we're facing and that the world is facing around us. We've seen that lament... We can lament the feeling of God's absence. That's sort of an existential problem. We're also to lament concrete realities like the psalmist does here. He laments the oppression at the hands of the deceitful, the ungodly, the unjust. And just as he did, we are to lament the wrongs in the world as well. In lament, we avoid the mistake of skipping over our pain and skipping over the pain of those around us are able to understand, empathize, and then to minister to those in pain. Therefore, it's right and biblical to lament when a friend loses a child. It's right and biblical to lament 
what's going on in the Middle East. It's right and biblical to lament the racial wounds of our nation. It's right and biblical to lament the plight of the poor, both in this country and others. And maybe the clearest example that this is right for us to lament is 9-11. The pain in the world is something that we're called to feel, to empathize with, and then to act on. Chris Rice and Emmanuel Cantangale are two professors at Duke Divinity School, and they tell a story about one of their students in, in their book, Reconciling All Things. And this student was working as a chaplain for a summer in North Carolina. One day, a family from Africa who had, the, who had a child, a newborn baby who had been in ICU for four months, lost this baby. And Rice and Kantongale write this. The mother was devastated, lost in her grief. This student watched as two nurses came to the mother and asked if she wanted to help them clean the baby. Together they removed the tubes. As the mother and nurses stood over the baby and washed her, they began singing over her lifeless body. They cried and expressed intense emotions of grief. The, nurse, the nurses did not avoid the mother's grief and pain. They did not tell her it was in God's plan. They did not try to cheer her up. They gave her a beautiful outlet for her raw emotion. To learn to lament is to become people who stay near to the wounds of the world singing over them and washing them, allowing the unsettling cry of pain to be heard. I want to ask, does this sound like us? Is this us? Are we a community that seeks out the suffering and the pain, both that's within our own community and that's around our community? and wrap our arms around that suffering and pain and those who are going through it? Are we a community of lament? We're called to lament in order to take seriously the wounds of the world and also to hope in God's future deliverance, knowing that only in God's deliverance do we have hope. Psalm 43, 4 says this, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Even in the midst of distance from God, even in the midst of absence of God's justice, the psalmist declares confidence in God's deliverance. And so he can conclude with his refrain that doesn't answer his questions but commits to hope in God. Why are you cast down? O oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. But none of us laments as we should. We often fail to desire God and be truly desperate when he feels absent. Instead, we seek out the comfort of our idols. We seek out the comfort of material things. We fail to take our personal hurts and our doubts to God. Instead, we try and go it alone. 
We fail to take seriously the pains and the injustices in the world and to lament them. Instead, we seek comfortable lives and remove ourselves from the suffering around us and assume that others would be able to do the same if they only got their act together. But there is one whom Psalm 42 and 43 describe perfectly. There is one who hungered and thirsted for God so much that he rejected sustenance after 40 days because he knew that that couldn't replace the Father. There is one who is so sorrowful in his prayer that he began to sweat blood. There is one who left his comfort and status and entered into the pain and mess of the world and who then was able to bring restoration. It's only because Jesus lamented that we can hope in God. See Jesus lamenting the death of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him again from the dead. See him lamenting over Jerusalem's rejection of him and the judgment that he knew was coming on it. See him lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. And see him lamenting on the cross, the ultimate example of lament. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's because Jesus entered into the sorrows and the lament that came with the cross that we can be saved. It is because he continued relationship to God faithfully, even when God was absent, that we have the hope of salvation and the assurance of grace and the forgiveness of sins. Praying the lament of Psalm 42 and 43 and modeling our prayers of lament after it and after other psalms of lament that are in the Scripture, that leads us to praying more like our Savior, more like our Master. In lament, we recognize that we are not home here in this world, that there are things and people and forces working against God and His design for creation, that justice and mercy are to be cried out for, that our only hope in life and death is Jesus. Lament doesn't allow us to place our hope in this world. So I urge you this morning to enter into the practice of lament with the Spirit's help. Pray the lament psalms. Bear your hurt and pain before God. Seek out and mourn with the poor, the oppressed, and the suffering. And call on God for justice and restoration, which are coming in God's timing. So we'll end with these words from the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Jesus, the great lamenter. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and true and faithful. But we know there are times, Lord, in our lives that you will feel absent, even though we might not have sinned at the time. I ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would give us the ability to lament your silence, and to continue to place your hope in you. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins, to take on himself 
the truest absence of God, and then to rise to new life. We pray that you transform us into people that, like Jesus, love and serve you joyfully, yet at the same time, like Jesus, lament in a fallen world and hope only in you. Amen.